Hey guys, it's Tats here from Castagra, and welcome to the Specified Growth Podcast. Each week, I talk to leaders and experts about how to overcome adversity, grow massive organizations, and how to create meaningful change in the building materials and coatings industry. Today's guest is Tony Elwick and Danny Small of Stratagen. Tony Elwick is the founder and CEO of Stratagen. Tony is a pioneer of jobs to be done theory and the inventor of outcome-driven innovation. Powerful innovation process with the documented success rate that is five times the industry average. Danny Small is a building innovation practice leader at Stratagen. Danny has 15 years of experience in innovation strategy in the business development aspects of the construction industry. Thank you for both coming on the show. Thank you, Tom. Thank you. We appreciate it. So before we talk innovation, I, I want to ask, let's start with Tony. Uh, give me a, a, a fond childhood uh, memory. <laughs> I have so many. I was very lucky. But I do remember the first time uh, heading on to a roller coaster. Very exhilarating. Yeah. <laughs> Is that something you liked to do when you were a child? I still like it. Oh, oh, yeah. Very cool. How about you, Danny? Most of the fun memories I have from my childhood center around my siblings. There were six of us. And one that pops to mind is when uh, my brother and I went and climbed up on top of a dirt hill. We, we moved into a, a new home in a, in a newly developing area. And there's this big dirt hill. And we, we climbed up on there and we were playing uh, King of the Hill for a while. And it became a dirt clod fight. <laughs> and uh, I was the younger brother, but I eventually got him on the run. And he took off running back for home. And as he was running away, he was probably 30 or 40 yards away. And I hurled one last dirt clod <laughs> at him and watched it come down slowly as he was still uh, full speed running down the path toward home. And my dirt clod came right down on top of his head and uh, shattered on his head and he screamed and he said there was a rock in that one so just uh wrestling around and and uh getting dirty and and fighting and having fun with my brothers and sisters is one of the joyous memories of my childhood very nice <laughs> so <laughs> back to tony we talked about you sort of uh, done a lot of stuff in the innovation space particularly out outcome driven innovation for those that don't know can you give us sort of a, a, an outline of what that is? Yeah, absolutely. So when you think about innovation, there's a lot of different definitions, but we try to define innovation as a process. You know, quite simply, it's the, the idea of coming up with solutions that address unmet customer needs. So when you frame it that way, there's really two ways to come up with innovative ideas. One is to brainstorm those ideas and then test them in the market to see if they're good ideas or not call that the ideas first approach. And many companies adopt that kind of thinking. They brainstorm the goals to come up with lots of ideas. Then they go try to filter out those that are the great ideas. And they, they struggle because the criteria that they're using to determine which ideas are best or not is often unknown. So even though you can brainstorm lots of ideas, the chances of coming up with great ideas are, are pretty slim. And even if you did, 
you may not even recognize that you did. So that idea's first approach is pretty problematic. And using that kind of thinking, companies have pretty low success rates. So the other option is to then determine all the customer's needs first. And once you figure out what those needs are and which are unmet, then you can come up with solutions that specifically address those unmet needs. So that makes far more sense. It's you know basic marketing 101 logic. But uh, companies who go down that path often fail as well. And the main reason is the way they define customer needs. What we find is that in most companies, there's, there isn't agreement as to what a customer need actually is or what the customer's needs are or which needs are unmet. So you have this odd dynamic that takes place within companies. And everyone's trying to create value for the customer. So you know, everyone's trying to come up with solutions that address unmet needs. But whether you're in sales or marketing or R&D or development, you're defining needs differently. So there's, there's no agreement on what the target is. So this is what's been very problematic. Outcome-driven innovation solves that problem because it focuses people on the outcomes they're trying to achieve. So I'll give you a brief overview of that. Yeah. The theory goes that people buy products to get a job done. And that job can be defined as a, a process, you know, a step-by-step flow that people go through to try to achieve something. So whether it's in the construction industry or, or elsewhere, people buying many products to get various jobs done. The thought process here is if we can go to customers and understand that job and figure out how do they measure success along each step of the way, we can create products and services that will help them get that job done better. So those metrics that they're using to decide how well they're getting the job done are what we call the customer's desired outcomes. So they're a very special form of need statement that makes them stable over time and solution agnostic and measurable and controllable. And we've really put a set of specifications on these statements and captured correctly, they bring predictability to the innovation process. So this is our approach. The whole thought is if we can define needs as the metrics that people use to measure success when getting a job done, and we can go to customers to capture those needs and prioritize them, we can be much more successful at creating products to help them get those jobs done better. So at a very high level, that's what we're trying to accomplish. Of course, the the mechanics behind the process are detailed, but at a high level, that's that's the goal. Yeah, absolutely. So, how expansive is that sort of outcome? That uh, desired outcomes is is it? Do you go as far as the company needs to make money? This thing needs to be fixed. Is that sort of the full range, or like can you can you give a, a sort of a, a simple example, and then we can go into a specific building material example? Well, sure. Well, you know, build, building material example. There's different customers, and this is where it can get confusing. You know, the very first question is, who are you trying to create value for? Well, certainly the company, right? You're trying to generate revenue and profitability. But you, don't, you, you can't just generate profitability without creating value for the customer. So our main focus is on how do we create value for the customer? So who is the customer? Turns out there's many, right? You have the builder, for example, who may be purchasing the products, and they're using some set of financial metrics to decide whether product A or product B is superior. Then you have the contractor uh, who might be installing the product, and they're using yet a different set of metrics to decide if the product, you know, which product is better than the other. And then you have the people, maybe occupants of a building or the building tenants that are in the building, and they're deriving benefit from the materials that were used as well. And yet, you know, they have a different set of metrics that they're using to decide if their jobs are being executed successfully. 
So you can see very quickly that it can become pretty complicated, mm-hmm. especially in the construction space. If we were to go to the consumer product goods space for a moment and talk about a toothbrush manufacturer, for example, mm-hmm. their customer is the consumer. They use the product, they buy the product, they interface with the product. There's only one customer, right? Mm-hmm. They interact with every aspect. So it becomes a little bit easier to say who's my customer and, and what are their needs. But without a framework like this, it becomes more complicated very quickly when you start getting into the construction space. And by applying the framework, you can start making sense of of these different constituents and how they measure success and, and what combinations you have to look at them in order to create overall value for those customers. If you do that correctly, of course, and a great value for your company as well. Yeah, very good. Thanks, Tony. Danny, so this prioritization that Tony's talking about, give me an example of how it applies in the building material space as in, where do you start? I mean, okay, there's all these different groups, all these different sort of areas. Where are the key areas that a company would start to sort of pick this apart? Because you can't do it all. Right. So that's one of the things that we, that our process helps with as well, is we can help companies to determine where to look for opportunities. That's one of the first things that we, we do with our clients is to help them to find areas to, to look at, to define a market that they want to study. And then we start to, to help them to, to study that. What, what Tony said is absolutely correct about the construction industry. It's got a very complex network of stakeholders and, and customers, if you will. I've spent quite a few years with building product manufacturers, working for them in uh, innovation and business development. And depending on who you talk to, the customer could be the distributor. It could be the GC. It could be the subcontractor. It could be the owner. It could be the uh, building occupants or all of the above for different reasons. And so we help companies to figure out which of those stakeholders would be, they'd be best served to study. And then we help them go about studying that. Sure. So what's the process? Like, give me a case example, Danny, on how it worked out. Like you dug over here and then you found this, and then this is kind of kind of the key lever that you pushed and you were able to push through. Give me an example to just simplify this. Yeah. So one case that we talk about fairly frequently is a case that we did with Bosch, the tool manufacturer. And they, they wanted to break into the circular saw market and uh, compete at price parity with the other major competitors in the market, but come out with a superior saw. Now, like many building material, product, and tool and equipment manufacturers, they had many, many ideas, hundreds of ideas that they had accumulated over the years. I've been there. I've spent many years in, in innovation with building product manufacturers, and that was how we worked too. We did the ideas first approach. And I think most companies in the built environment do use that approach. So they had many, many ideas that they had come up with over the years as to how to design a good saw. But the problem was they didn't know which of them were the right ideas. They didn't know where to put their focus and their emphasis. So we came along and we helped them to discover what those unmet or underserved outcomes were. And we studied, in this case, craftspeople mm-hmm. who were trying to cut wood in a straight line. So that was our, 
our playground that we that we played in for them. And so that included electricians, framers, finished carpenters, etc. And in doing that, we were able to uncover a, a certain segment of those customers who had to do angular cuts and more complex cuts, etc., who had 14 what we called underserved outcomes. These are things that were important to these folks, but they weren't very satisfied with their ability to get them done with the current solutions. Things like avoiding cutting the cord while they, while they were cutting a board, avoiding damaging the saw when lowering it down by the cord, etc. So all told, we had 14 of these that we uncovered for them. And when we presented these 14 underserved outcomes to them, they, they got their development and design and engineering team together. And in a matter of half a day, they were able to come up with the design for this saw, which later became one of the top innovations of the year when it was, when it was released and became the leading circular saw for many, many years thereafter. The point is that they already had all the ideas that were necessary to de design that saw. But again, they didn't know where to start. And so our research and our consulting helped them to figure out where to, where to go to, to find the best opportunities that would, would, we knew ahead of time they would be successful in the marketplace. Yeah, no, it's great. So Tony, what, what sort of time frame does, does this take? I mean, at least just the steps, because obviously some of these companies are not culturally ready to take this on right away. Like what sort of time frame does this all kind of lead into? Yeah, it doesn't have to take that that long, mm -hmm. right? So um, you know, it, it, it varies is, uh, is the answer, but um, let me just give you some quick options. So for example, uh, just to get a good understanding of the customer, the customer's job, the job map and the set of needs is um, we often do that in this is quick as two days. And we do it more of an immersion process where we sit with customers for you know, four or five hours at a time over a couple day period to really flesh out you know, what, what their view of the job is and how they measure success. And then we might spend another day or two doing additional interviews validating that set of outcomes or set of needs. A lot of our clients are global, so we may do that worldwide as well. But within a very short time, we have a, a set of needs that we can agree on as what customers are trying to achieve. The next step is to quantify it. And this is what takes probably the most significant amount of time, mm -hmm. anywhere from two weeks to four weeks generally, to uh, put a survey together and put it out to um, you know, 100 or 1,000 uh, people, depending on the situation, and ask them to tell us um, which, you know, how important each outcome is. And given their solution that they're using, how satisfied are they with their ability to achieve each outcome? So from that, we're able to figure out where the unmet needs are. When we get the data back, we can quickly start analyzing it. Within a week or so, we know where the opportunities are and where we should focus our uh, attention to go create more value for the customer. Then we enter the um, ideation phase where we'll work with a team uh, to start brainstorming the solutions for needs that we know are underserved. And that can happen as little as, as Danny just said, a half a day or so, but we generally allocate a couple of days. So in total, we're looking from anywhere from four to six weeks to complete the entire process, but there's you know important milestones along the way. And, and what we're doing here is we're just kind of uh, you know flipping around the the ideas first approach, right? So instead of coming up with lots of ideas, 
and hoping that some might address an unmet need, we're first uncovering all the unmet needs and then specifically working to make sure we've defined solutions that are addressing all of them. So we're not wasting our time coming up with ideas that have no value to customers. We're specifically focusing on things that will have value if we can solve them. So it becomes very efficient. Mm, Very good. Now, the surveys you put out, because I've heard in innovation circle surveys are not as sometimes not as effective, but I think the way that you do it, I think sort of addresses sort of the outcomes. So I think it's different, but give me an example type of questions you ask, like some of the processes. Yeah, you're making some great points because many traditional surveys are focused on solutions. So they ask people, to, would they prefer this solution or that solution or this feature or that feature without really understanding customer needs? Our surveys are all about customer needs. They're solution agnostic. And we're just trying to figure out as people are trying to cut wood in a straight line, for example, you know, they may want to minimize the likelihood of losing track of the cut line as they're making progress you know, through the cut or minimize the likelihood that the cord gets stuck on the wood as they're making movement towards the end of the cut line or minimize the likelihood that the, tra- that the, the cut goes off track as they're approaching the end of the cut. There's all those series of things that, that come into play that we can uncover very quickly as we're interviewing those customers. Yeah, that's definitely good. Now, so, so Tony, this is something that always comes to mind. Like when you're pursuing innovation, right? You, you have these companies that most of them that you work with are quite operational, right? So they have this sort of ongoing business and they're just trying to go towards the future. Now, what percentage of the company's resources should be invested back into innovation? Like what sort of strategy needs to be in place? Well, it's ongoing, right? So companies are already in markets, right? So they're serving customers already. And of course, they should invest time and effort into growing those markets, right? So that's pretty straightforward. But then there's inefficient ways and efficient ways to go from there. We talk about growing from the core, like If you're already helping people cut wood in a straight line, then you could do two two things that would make sense from an adjacent market standpoint. You could find other people who are trying to cut wood in a straight line and sell the same product to them to grow your sales. Mm. Or you could go to those people who are cutting wood in a straight line and ask them what other jobs are they trying to get done when they're cutting wood in a straight line and create products that help them get those other jobs done. The advantage of going in either of those directions is that you either have the technology capability in place to address a set of needs, or you have the relationships in place to deal with a customer that you already have focused on the sales team targeted towards. So those make great sense. You already have a foot in the door. So I like defining market adjacencies in that way. A lot of companies, as they're thinking about new markets, they think about new executors and brand new jobs. And if you don't use this kind of thinking and framework, you end up in that space more often than not. And of course, trying to come up with brand new solutions to address brand new customers is a far more risky approach to take. Mm-hmm. So you got to be much more careful. So when we start thinking about allocating time and effort and resources from your company perspective in order to grow, we do it in that precise order. Grow your core market. Make sure you're getting helping them get the entire job done. See if you can help them get other jobs done and see if there's other people trying to get those same jobs done, right? It makes perfect sense, a very logical way to grow. And then when you can't hit your revenue numbers 
going in those two directions, <laughs> then you start investing in brand new markets, new executors getting new jobs done. So, of course, you got to allocate your resources effectively in each of those areas in order to maintain the level of growth that you're looking for. That makes a lot of sense. Now, Danny, what are examples of companies, besides the one that you mentioned in the building materials sort of construction space that are doing a great job from what you can see in this innovation area? Yeah, so there, as you know, Tats, we're, we're coming into a, a bit of a renaissance, an innovation renaissance in the construction or built environment these days. It's, uh, the industry is abuzz with, with innovation. And so I, I think that it's really taking hold in the industry. We're, we're really seeing a surge in uh, interest and, and openness to innovation in the industry. There are, of course, the, the famous companies such as Katera, et cetera, who are innovating as far as supply chain consolidation, offsite manufacturing, et cetera. There are also similar companies that are, that are doing innovating in, in those same ways, such as uh, Skender in Chicago. Blocks is doing similar things where they're, they're consolidating that supply chain into the design, manufacture, construct type of a model, bringing that all under one roof. And instead of brokering risk and trying to avoid it among a disparate number of, of players, they're consolidating that, that risk and that control. And in aggregate, they're able to reduce that risk. So that's, that's one example of a type of innovation that's, that's going on that is well observed by, by people within the industry. On the topic of investment, and, and you were asking about how much is, is the right amount, mm -hmm. brings to mind, and I'm sure you're aware of this as well, that construction is, is known for, for being one of the least, if not the least or lowest investors in innovation or R&D. And I know that building products are a little bit higher, but construction in general is at about, I believe, about half of a percent that they reinvest in innovation, whereas in other industries, it ranges anywhere from two to, in extreme cases, up to 10% that's invested in innovation. And one of the big reasons for that is that construction is a very low margin industry, right? And uh, as a result, very conservative. These folks have not really had money to risk on what is broadly seen as a very risky venture being innovation. And so what really intrigues me about the application of outcome-driven innovation to the construction industry in particular mm -hmm. is that it can de-risk innovation and make it so that the dollars that are spent are much, much more effectively spent. The ROI is much greater. The risk is much lower. I mean, imagine knowing before you spend a dime on development that what you're developing, what you're working on is very likely to win in the marketplace rather than coming up with ideas and spending a bunch of time and money to, to vet them and call the list and to develop them before you have any idea whether it's going to go anywhere. So this type of an approach backed by science and data is I think perfect for a thin margin conservative industry like construction to help them to de-risk their innovation and actually do the innovation that really is being 
demanded now by uh, circumstances in the marketplace of the industry, but still not have to bet the farm, so to speak, on doing that innovation. So Danny, does the construction industry need to be low margin or is that the innovation that needs to occur? That's a, that's a great point, Thoughts, because I think that the low margins that the industry has suffered from in large part are due to some of the things that are broken about the industry, <laughs> right? The fragmentation, the, the risk brokering, right? The regionalization, the inefficient distribution system, right? So it's an excellent point that these things that are old school and have been around forever and really aren't the most efficient way to do things, those are the things that are driving down those margins. And so once we start to innovate and we start to drive out these inefficiencies in the supply chain and the value chain, then it'll be a, a virtuous cycle, right? We'll get more and more money, more and more profits, I believe, to reinvest in innovation, which will further accelerate our transformation of the industry, and it'll just go round and round. Absolutely. That makes sense. So, uh, Tony, you've worked on tons and tons of projects. What's the favorite project you worked on? I remember one in particular was with um, Intel Corporation. The reason this was so interesting is because it was on a, in a market that didn't exist. It was uh, the, this whole concept of building out the information economy, the idea that people would trade information with companies for things of value. And that what happens today, right? Like yeah. companies get information from you and they use it, but you don't get paid for it. <laughs> so <laughs> and the whole goal is, you know, how do you democratize this so people can get value for giving up their information? And so we spent the better part of a year trying to think through this from a jobs to be done perspective and applying our, our principles mm-hmm. to figure out, well, you know, what are the jobs people would try to are trying to get done that they might give up information for? So just a, a quick example, mm-hmm. credit card companies have a really good idea of what you've done all year, right? Because yeah. there's uh, records of all that. And would you be willing to share that information with a company that would put together a storyboard or a movie of what you did and what your accomplishments were for that year? It'd be very interesting, right? Yeah. They know what restaurants you went to, what yeah. hotels you stayed at, what sites you saw. Uh, if they could put something together that would just reinforce all the excitement and fun you endured throughout that year, yeah, you might be willing to give up all that information to get that in return. Mm-hmm. That was one of uh, hundreds of examples. But the whole idea was there's so many of these examples, you could build an economy around it. <laughs> and the goal was to figure out how, how the different players would benefit from that and what Intel, Intel's role would be in overseeing that huge ecosystem. So it was, it was very interesting because, again, that market doesn't exist. It still, it still doesn't exist, but it's, it's slowly developing. Yeah, well, that's good. You, you're talking about it. I know you're talking, I guess I saw a video you did to talk about job mapping and, and how when you separate all the jobs that need to be done, the market player would, would basically start in one section, but then they would kind of expand out to be able to handle more and more of the the tasks in and around that in various outcomes. And 
I think the example you gave with the phone was sort of consolidating and making it more convenient. So I feel like these sort of, I guess, technologies, like you said, algorithms and stuff are bringing everything closer together. You know, what doesn't that all favor the big companies? You know, are small companies going to have a huge disadvantage going forward? Well, I mean, it is challenging because what you're the, the concept that you're describing is this idea that most products just get part of the job done, and people want to get the entire job done. And those companies that are most equipped to get the entire job done are people with deep pockets and a lot of resources, which could favor the um, the large companies. But it doesn't have to be that way, right? Mm-hmm. What really matters is who who can conceptualize that platform first. Mm-hmm. And, and like you've seen Uber, you've seen Netflix, mm-hmm. you know, they, they were startups basically that took over markets because they, they thought of the entire platform before they, before they came out, right? They owned the entire platform. Nespresso was another one, right? They, they took over the whole market as newcomers into the space because they owned the platform that got the entire job done. So while it sounds like it might, favor large companies because yes, it does require vast resources and so on. It's not as if you have to start with all the pieces in place. You start with the general concept and work to own that platform faster than anyone else does, right? And so you see many examples of that, just like I've described. So it's um, it's a, a way for small companies to think big, if you will, and it allows them to conceptualize and architect platforms that don't preclude them from getting the entire job done, right? So if you can think with that mindset, you've, you've started with the end goal in mind and you're systematically building your way towards getting there. If you don't have that framework in mind, you end up as a feature in someone else's platform mm-hmm. and that's how you get disrupted. And, and that's what you're trying to avoid. Yeah. And if there were ever an industry where nobody is doing the whole job, it's construction, mm. right? That's kind of been the definition of the construction value chain yeah. is that it's every single step in the value chain is split up among a different group of, of companies, yeah. right? All the way from the materials manufacturers, the distributors, the architects, the engineers, the designers, the subcontractors, the inspectors, the GCs, the developers, right? Yeah. Everybody's got their own little tiny piece of the of the puzzle, but in the case of, as I mentioned, Katera, Skender, Blocks, and others, they're starting to take on more and more of that job. They're starting to see the concept that Tony just described. That really, that end user, the the building owner or whoever is is wanting to get the job done of done of building a building, they just want the building built. Yeah, and whoever is going to Whoever figures out how to do that whole job on a single platform yeah. is going to win. Mm-hmm. Makes a lot of sense. Now, there's, uh, there's a lot of opportunity, but is there, is there anything, Tony, that I didn't ask you, but I should have? Well, I think that one of the common questions is, how do you get started with all yeah. this? And it's really just simply a matter of adopting a new lens. Just think about your markets in this different way. You know, we've talked about all this today. Take the first step. The first step is to think through, you know, who, who is my customer and what job are they trying to get done? So instead of defining your market around a technology or a product or 
a region or a demographic or a vertical. Think of a market as a group of people who are trying to get a job done. And if you can just take that very first step, you can see how that can lead to a whole new set of possibilities. Because once you think of your market that way, you begin to think of your competitors differently. You know, your competitors aren't people who create products just like yours. They're any company that's helping get that job done. Yeah. And when you start thinking about customer needs, it's not about just cost and getting the job done cheaper. It's about how do you get that core job done better? So I, I think it just, um, it's, a, it's a nice paradigm shift. And to get there, just take that first step. Just start envisioning a market that you're in through this lens and start thinking about the possibilities. Thank you, Tony. How are you, Danny? Is there anything I should ask you? I think maybe one of the things that is not well understood, in, particularly in the, in the construction industry, is this, this concept that, that Tony talked about. As with other industries, we're not the only ones, but in construction, we tend to think of innovation as enhancing the features of, of what we offer, whether it's a, a product in the case of materials manufacturers, product manufacturers, or whether it's our service in the case of a contractor. We go for ideas first, for one thing, and then we think of, we think in terms of solutions or in the context of what we're already providing and just improving that rather than thinking in terms of what our customers are trying to get done when they, when they hire us or buy our products. And so specifically to apply this process to construction, that, as Tony said, the, the paradigm shift is, is critical, but it's especially pronounced, I think, in our industry because we are so hyper-focused on the solutions that have been used in the past. We've been at this a long, long time. It's uh, one of the oldest industries in the world and also one of the largest. And so we tend to get very myopic about the idea of changing what we do. And we, we, we think about what we do rather than what the customer is needing to get done. Yep. Makes total sense. So thank you so much, guys. Thank you. Well, thank you. I appreciate, appreciate you taking the time. I want to thank everyone for listening to Specify today. Also want to thank the listeners who are working hard each day to change the world to make it a better place. If you know anyone, anyone that would benefit from this episode, please pass it along. And finally, make sure you subscribe to hear upcoming episodes. Talk to you soon. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.